This is Madeline Cantwell, Orion's Managing Director. This interview is part of the Orion podcast series, which, like Orion Magazine, is totally ad-free and independent. Support Orion by making a donation at orionmagazine.org slash donate. Good morning. I'm Helen Weibrow, Orion's Editor-at-Large, and I'm speaking today with Robin Wall Kimmerer, whose article, Speaking of Nature, appeared in the May-June 2017 issue of Orion. Robin is a professor of environmental biology at the State University of New York and the founding director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. She's also the author, most recently, of Braiding Sweetgrass, a highly acclaimed book on plants and indigenous knowledge. Robin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Helen. Yes. You're someone who really brings the knowledge of worlds together. I think of you that way. You're a trained scientist, a botanist, and a specialist in mosses, which uh, you beautifully describe as the coral reefs of the forest. And you're also a member of the Potawatomi Nation and have worked extensively with tribal nations across the country um, to help document and recover indigenous knowledge that was repressed um, by colonial and U.S. government policies for centuries. So I wonder if we might begin a little bit with your own childhood and the origins of your connection to both the science and the consciousness of plants. You know, Helen, I I was lucky enough to grow up in the woods and the fields with uh, parents who thought it important that kids play outside a lot today. You know, we're free-range children. And um, playing out in, in the woods, I really had this notion that that the plants were my companions, my teachers, you know, kind of endless curiosity. I always just wanted to be out looking at things and, and trying to see how the world was put together. And so while I was really lucky in that regard, I also have to count that what I didn't have, and that was that by virtue of policies of removal, relocation, assimilation, I did not grow up in an intact Potawatomi community. I grew up with my Potawatomi family. I grew up with what I now know to to be Potawatomi values and ethics and worldview, um, but without the language and, and, and cultural practice, without knowledgeable elders to guide me. And, and I know there was a way that the plants became that for me. You know, they, be, they were knowledge holders and teachers for me. So um, my early start was really based in, in, in traditional kinds of thinking and, and, and in the natural world. But it was really only later um, that I had access to teachers for language and culture. Yeah, so your plants were your first teachers, and then it became a sort of reclaiming of that traditional knowledge that is part of your lineage. And you write about your grandfather, who was um, someone who was forced to assimilate in the infamous Carlisle Indian School and um, gave up his language as a result of that forced assimilation. Did you ever meet him or have a relationship with him? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I certainly knew him as when I was a child before he uh, passed on. And um, yeah. And, you know, the thinking about him and what 
he lost was always very present in my mind because I had so many questions that I would um, mostly ask my dad, you know, like, you know, what did, what, tell me about this, tell me about the name for this in our language, or tell me the stories that go with this. And he always had to say that um, he didn't, he couldn't tell me those things because of, of his, his father and my grandpa's um, experience. And, and his dad didn't talk a lot about the, the school, except to say how lonely he was, how homesick he was, and uh, how difficult it, it was. You know, but at the same time, we know from from what he said about his time there that he also really um, loved uh, learning. He loved being a scholar, actually. You know, he talked so much about um, how much reading and literature meant to him. So while there was so much that was taken from him, he also was exposed to something that became important to him, storytelling. How do you um, yourself walk those two worlds as a, a professor who, who teaches very um, traditional science on the one hand and then also bringing all of this rich body of knowledge into your students? I try to be very clear with my students about, that, about the nature of these different knowledge systems, just as I have had to learn for myself from generous teachers and from cultural experience um, the power of both of these ways of knowing and, and, and how they're different. You know, let me give you an example. Um, I'm right now teaching my field ethnobotany class. And so I tell my students, you know, now we're going to look at the world through the lens of Western science. Here's something about that lens. And here's what we see in the plant world when we use the Western worldview. But then in the very next session, I'll say, okay, now we, we understand what that worldview brings us, what it allows us to see and what it doesn't allow us to see. Let's look through this other lens. I just finished a class where we were talking about indigenous pedagogy, indigenous ways of learning about the plants. Um, but really, in the indigenous way, it's learning from the plants, um, not just about them, because we view ourselves as, you know, in relationship to them. They're, we're learning from them, them as, as, as our teachers. So, um, you know, just in my class today, we, we look through both of those lenses, trying to be very clear about um, what they offer us. Because that's what I think is so important, is to know how these lenses are distinct so we know when to use them and, and not to, to muddle them and into any way um, really blend them because we know what we're, we're going to lose something if we're not clear about what it is that we're seeing and what one lens uh, makes us blind to and what another lens opens us to. That's beautiful, like two different windows, not trying to necessarily make them connected, but being through both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the phrases you use in your article that I really love is this phrase ecological compassion. And you write about how ecological compassion resides in indigenous language, that it's embedded in the language. Um, this kind of grammar of animacy that makes non-human species alive um, 
in a, in a way that engenders respect. And, um, and then you go further to say that, that this type of language is actually seen as dangerous to cultures that need, um, need nature to be seen as inanimate and in order to exploit it as a resource. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how, how you came to this um, kind of deep interest and examination of language in your work. Again, I would have to start with relationship with plants who have been the ones who um, really alerted me to this and flagged this for me that I've always understood them as persons, um, as carriers of knowledge, as, as libraries, as teachers, as examples of, of, of living examples of how we might live. Um, and so when I studied sciences and had to write extensively, of course, in that scientific voice in writing scientific papers, technical papers, etc. One of the things that was deeply troubling to me was that these beautiful beings who had taught me so much, you know, on, you know, I'm before my knees on plants most of my life as, as a scientist, as a, as a human being, and yet I had to call them it. I had to reduce them to as if they were just things not beings and and that's it felt deeply dishonest to speak of of the plants as 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 it's so that experience you know left me longing for another way and when you really decompose on um, that notion of of it as you so wisely said helen you know itting of nature of thinking about nature and speaking of nature as as object as material really as our property um opens up this this whole door to exploitation if it's just stuff we can treat it any way that we want but if it's family if it's beings if they are other persons um we have ecological compassion for them you know say speaking with the grammar of animacy um brings us all into this circle of 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 moral consideration whereas when we say it we set we set those beings those things as they say outside of our circle of of moral responsibility and so it, it it seems both disloyal to those plants and and just deeply ethically wrong to to set other beings who care for us who take care of us who bring us all of these gifts to send set them outside as if they were nothing um is dishonorable Yes, I love that phrase, the circle of moral responsibility and how that's connected. I think that's so well said. And, you know, we use that, don't we? When we think about when we are very intentionally um, separating ourselves from moral responsibility, we use language that others. Um, the history of war making throughout humanity has always been accompanied by ugly names and epithets that we give to our enemies, right? Um, we push them onto our enemies so that they are outside our circle of moral responsibility, outside of our compassion, so that we can wage warfare 
on them. And there's a way in which that same objectification and othering that we do to the living world is what we do to our enemies. And we have to think deeply about that. You know, we, we, we sometimes behave as if we were, are at war with the natural world and our language enables that. We have a history of, of creating that kind of language. Couldn't we have a history of undoing that? Yes, beautiful. Do you, um, as a as a teacher, do you use other ways as well that invite or inspire ecological compassion? I imagine this is something you really think about, um, you know, besides language, which, you know, unlikely to change quickly, right? Language does change, as you say in your article, and it's changing all the time, and, and it's, it's a political... Um, it's a political notion to change language and it's possible to do, but it does take time. Are there other ways that you would say to people other actions or thoughts that could invite this greater ecological compassion? Yes. One of the tools that I try to use with my students is storytelling that when we come to um, meet a, a plant in the forest as we're doing just this morning as we walked along the lake, um, we can objectify those plants by, you know, simply spewing out facts about them while they live this way, their seeds are like this, their stems are constructed like this, as if they were objects. Um, and those are valuable things to know for sure, because they can amplify our understanding of, of, the, of the plant as a being. But if we don't include the beingness, if all we include is the material description, we never see the being. We again say, well, there are others there. They're just things. And so I like whenever I'm able to tell a story about that plant uh, from a cultural context that um, shows the agency of that of that tree. You know, a lot of us, our stories will talk about what the tree showed us or what that, that fern showed us or, or a, a teaching story about um, how that plant models how we might be in the world or sometimes how we better not be in the world. Um, so uh, I find stories as, as a, a really important way to bring people into relationship with, with the trees so that they become not just, you know, green wallpaper ecosystem entities that we walk by we can't call them natural resources when we know their story you know we can't help but feel compassionate to them when we look at those five needles on the white pine and recognize that oh those five needles they're telling the story of the unity of the five Haudenosaunee nations these are you know the the, the, the architecture of this tree is talking to us about the great law of peace from the Haudenosaunee tradition. That tree becomes uh, a gateway to a sense of place and a sense of history um, when we hear that story. And so stories about relationships, stories about what those plants have, have taught us are transformative. You just can't think of them as, as, as things after you know their story. Yeah, that's, you know, Robin, why I absolutely love your book, Braiding Sweetgrass, so much is it's full of those stories of relationship with the beings and uh, just draws you into that whole gateway of history and knowledge and um, kinship. It's beautiful. So well done. 
and is a joy to be in the world in that way, you know, so that when you come upon a, a, a certain plant, when you come upon those strawberries, for example, you, you are connected to, to ways of knowing and to history and to a spiritual tradition that you're reminded of every time you see that strawberry and put it in your mouth. So it just connects you to a, a wealth of belonging to place. Yes. So to get outside and immerse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> great call. Yes, as your students are doing right now with you in the Adirondacks. It's beautiful. So you said, Robin, that you said somewhere um, that you feel we're at the edge of a real understanding in science of the sentience of other beings, which really interested me. You know, I... I wonder if you see science being more influenced by indigenous and spiritual knowledge um, and whether you see a shift or anticipate a shift. That's a, that's a very um, nuanced question. And I, I want to take it maybe piece by piece. Do I see that science is starting to shift toward an awareness of the beingness of the world? I do. I do. Um, whether it's influenced by indigenous ways of knowing, um, I would be less at this point um, skeptical. I would be more skeptical about that simply because indigenous ways of knowing have been so marginalized and, and dismissed within the scientific community that um, I don't know that there would be an acknowledgement that that's where these, that's the origin of these ideas. I guess I would say it's more of a confluence. Um, um, and it's a confluence that comes from knowing more about the beings because as we open ourselves to the possibility that, that trees are communicating with one another, for example, um, when we viewed them just as, as objects, as practically just material, you know, photosynthetic objects in a way. Um, we never even asked the questions. Are they communicating? Do they have knowledge? Can plants hold memory? Can plants learn? We didn't even ask those questions. But now that we are asking those questions, which come from intriguing observations that people have made about plants, we're finding that the answer to many of those questions is yes. Um, the, the field of plant cognition some people call it plant neurobiology i am in no way an expert in in that field but deeply fascinated by what's being found there that really does show us about the the um, intelligence of, of of plants and and animals you know where no science that i am aware of shows us that the natural world is dumber than we think you know <laughs> it's quite the opposite we're always you know left with our our mouths wide open of just in amazement like what the trees are able to communicate with one another the trees are nurturing one another uh, trees have memory trees have ability to learn um so what i think see is a, is a convergence because of course within traditional knowledge this is simply been an assumption about the world you know yes all beings are are, are sentient all our persons all have will and story and, and and gifts based on the lens through which our people used indigenous science with using mind, body, emotion, and spirit to understand the world. And, and Western science is moving in that same holistic um, direction, um, not with the same philosophical 
underpinnings, but I can't help but think that the evidence will lead us exactly there to personhood inceptions. Beautiful. I love that word convergence and the way you've described it. It's really exciting. It is. I can't wait. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Robin. It's been such a privilege and a, a joy to talk to you today. Thanks, Helen. This is fun. Thank you.